Welcome to The Pestle, reviewing and breaking down the movies to look for insights into the movie-making process. Hosted by Todd, who completes Wes. Let's dim the lights and start the show. Welcome, everybody, to The Pestle. Today's show is brought to you by Blouse Barn. We have every animal print top and matching bottom. Pick up your set of koala swimsuits at the Blouse Barn. Welcome, everyone, to The Pestle. I am Wes. And I am Todd. And this is a film podcast, mostly by filmmakers, but not necessarily just for filmmakers, but for film lovers, aficionados, film buffs, bored people who stumbled in here. I like to imagine <laughs> bored people. <laughs> I like to imagine people well just kind of wander in like a big house, you know, podcast. You're just searching and like, oh, what's behind this door? Mm. yeah mm. footballs yeah kind of so, like kind of like my kids friends who like <laughs> live in the neighborhood they just wander into my house every now and then like <laughs> oh they? hi i didn't expect to see you there why not i live here you don't <laughs> <laughs> that's pretty much yeah what our podcast is like someone walks in oh that's new <laughs> yeah <laughs> welcome. welcome i guess would you like a like a, a gummy bear i don't know <laughs> so i've been Talking to people recently, I, I want to do a uh, like an actors roundtable on our Patreon here pretty soon. So I might coordinate that. And you know, if you're one of our Patreon subscribers, and you have that to potentially look forward to, and it's the kind of thing we might release after a while. And so I don't know. I I got to hang out with our good friend Joe the other day, and we were just got into. Uh, he had listened to our episode on that we released on a uh, auditioning and that's one we recorded last summer and so well you know nearly a year later and we finally released it and it was interesting just because i have my methods for auditioning you have yours and he was telling me about some of his techniques and things he's thinking about and his approach and it's just interesting because there's a lot to learn just from talking to him but and then there's you know so many other actors that we know who are talented and so i'd, I'd love to hear about different approaches because for me sitting in the waiting room right before I even get into the audition room itself, I start prepping in the waiting room and I'm breathing, I'm doing breathing exercises because you know, whatever nerves start to kick in. And whenever that happens, you start shallow breathing and it restricts your, your vocal cords and it starts to strangle your voice. And so for me, that's been a lifelong problem. And I have these little breathing techniques that I go into to start getting myself to relax and chill out. And I start focusing on I get to perform. It's never, you know, this idea about, oh, I need a book. And, you know, after a while, you stop thinking about that whenever, unless you're a Todd that just walks in and they, you're, you've been cast just based on your, your headshot. You know, not, not everybody has that. And so, uh, for us mortals, you know, we, we get into it and it can get into your head a little bit. And so you stop thinking about that. Instead, I start thinking about, and this is one of the things I, I learned from one of my acting coaches that, hey, I'm going to get to perform today and I get to perform in front of people who actually care, who are excited and, and tuned in. They're not looking at their cell phone for the most part. You know, that happens every once in a while. But for the most part, people are in the room or tuned in. And so I get excited about that and I get to perform and I like to take a beat after they call action, you know, and, and give me the, the space. I take a beat for myself just to own the room a little bit more before I go. And now it's you're on my time. You're on my watch. This is my stage and I'm going to perform the hell out of this and you're going to enjoy it. Even if I'm not right for the role, that's okay, but I'm going to, I'm going to show up and it's going to be fun. And that's what I got to, you know, start looking forward to. And so 
I don't know. Do you have any acting techniques or things, or do you just kind of go in and say to hell with it? Here we go. Wow. Well, I'm going to start doing that from now on. I love that. <laughs> Taking a beat for yourself. That's brilliant. For me, I've never really been nervous. I've just, it's either I'm right. Like you said, either I'm right for it and I get it or I'm not. And I don't, I mean, that's good and bad. I don't think it's necessarily something that's like helped me, you know, in fact, it's probably hurt me at times. I'm sure that's been auditions I've gone into where I should have been more mentally prepared for it, you know, and maybe I would have gotten it had I been, but either fortunately or unfortunately in that world, you never find out. You just either get it or you don't, you don't know why. I mean, 99% of the, of the auditions I've ever been on have been, if I felt like I did well, I never book it. And if I feel like I did shite, then I book it. You know, I I don't think, (laughs) I think maybe one time did I ever audition or twice where I actually booked the gig where I was like, man, I nailed that, you know? So at least the way that I've done it or like felt has just been like, you get out of my own way, get out of my own head. And if I try to prepare too much, like there, I need to be prepared. Like I'm not, I don't just like go into something unprepared, you know, like mm-hmm. I read through the script. If there are lines, I definitely know the lines. If there are not lines, I definitely try to put myself in the character, but I don't go too deep, at least for auditions, because then I, then I start getting nervous. The more I prepare, the more nervous I get usually. Oh, wow. I will say like acting has never been like my main mm-hmm. thing, yeah. right? You make money at it. And so it's fun. <laughs> Right. Exactly. It's like a, oh yeah, I'm going to get thousand dollar check this, you know, in six freaking months or whenever they decide to pay, <laughs> Right. but it's never been something where it's, it's my main gig. So I think a lot of actors who might be listening are like, oh, like cringing, but I think that a lot of big, big name actors are kind of similar. They're either right for it and they get it or they're not. And they don't. Now, if I book something and then I have a role to play, then mm. that's different. Then it's like, no, I got to be prepared like a hundredfold or else I'm nervous. So it's the opposite. It's kind of like when I used to perform music, I had to be prepared or I was nervous as shit about not being prepared enough because it was the thing that I wanted to be good at. Right. It was the thing that was like, this is, this is what I want to do. And then, but for auditions, I feel like I just want to be as real and as me as I can be, whether that's good or bad. And then if you like that, great, then I'm right for it. And I will prep for that. But I don't know. I don't know that that's right. I kind of like your way a lot better, <laughs> honestly. <laughs> and maybe if I start doing that, I'll book more. I, I like those moments. I mean, have you been on any auditions since COVID where mm-hmm. you've had to, we've had to actually go to a room and like own the room or is it Skype and you've had to kind of own that? Like, like what has the last year been like? Well, yeah. I mean, I, I haven't done any auditions since I left my agency. They did a merger that I wasn't crazy about. And so I was just like, you know what, I'm, I'm going to wait and look around and I just haven't gotten back to it. And the, uh, I was talking to Lori, one of my actresses from this last project. And I was like, you know, one of the problems with being a filmmaker is people stopped looking at me as an actor, which, you know, really sucks whenever I really love acting. It does something for me that nothing else does in terms of, you know, it's very therapeutic and I get to live outside of my head in a way that I never, ever get to do otherwise. 
because uh, if, if you listen to the podcast regularly, it may not surprise you to know that, you know, I'm pretty introverted. I spend a lot of time in my head and in my thoughts and that kind of thing. And acting is one of the very few moments in my life where I get to just be and I'm present and I'm fully present in the moment. And it's it's a really fun thing. So, no, I unfortunately, since COVID hit, I haven't done any auditions. But the you raise a really interesting question because auditioning over video is incredibly different from auditioning in person because there is a presence that you can't really command on video, you know, through remote auditioning. And so that is a different approach. And I haven't really considered how I would change that. I guess for me personally, I'd, I'd probably want to mic it a little bit better so that I have a stronger resonance through my vocal cords. Since, you know, your voice isn't going to carry as well if the, the, the microphone is by the camera, that sucks. You're, you're going to not sound quite as powerful as you otherwise would. So I might either love myself or try to get the, a boom just as close as humanly possible which those are options for me because i'm a filmmaker and i have those tools but hopefully if you're filming auditions and the people watching it are able to take that into account and there's a probably a leveling effect uh, across the playing field everyone's dealing with the same problems and so yeah i don't know it does create new wrinkles for for someone to consider if they're they're having to do remote casting remotely is is incredibly different we did get to do a, a final round in person and that was nice but for the most part, it was all like, hey, here's submissions and click video, click mm -hmm. video, click video, click video. And that gets tired. <laughs> so tired. But I'll be chewing on that for a while, though, because it's a worthy problem right now that isn't going away for at least the next six months. And I mean, the other thing is the auditions that I get here in Austin are never for films, you know what I mean? Or anything that's like yeah. substantive. So that's the other thing wrinkle here is that i'm sorry if you want me for your belvita commercial you're not going to get a ton of my time either because you're not casting me because of my artistic skills and my wow. acting skills you're casting me because i look a certain way let's mm -hmm. be honest like look at any commercial i guarantee you 99 percent of them are cast on looks and not on quality of of acting skill so yeah. like when i auditioned for your film I worked at it. Absolutely. I wanted that. You know what I mean? And and so I put in the effort and the time and I felt good about my, my performance there. I didn't just go into the audition like willy nilly, like thinking, oh, I'll just be me. N no, I need to be this character. I need to. You know, obviously, I'm going to be me. But at the same time, I was trying to be the character. I was trying to become, mm. you know, something else because that was something substantive that that had a, a layer, multiple layers to discover. But when you're auditioning for commercials, like, <laughs> I mean, you're lucky I'm in the waiting room. That's how I look at it. Like you're lucky I'm like that. I'm giving you my time. And if you want to cast me, cast me, if not, like I'm going to leave. Sorry. So yeah, that, that would be the biggest thing. Yeah. You're so right. I mean, they are largely casting on archetypes, like the quicker and I get it. I mean, you have maybe 30 seconds, you know, on a, relatively long commercial to make an impression and to tell a story and the quicker and more efficient you can make that story the better and part of that efficiency is let me cast someone who you see and you automatically know who they are and what part of the story they're telling and so having strong visual elements to your look can really help you know as far as commercial goes into you know maybe a lesser degree regular films go it makes casting easier and more obvious. And then obviously the more acting talent you have behind that to sell the personality even easier, you know, the that's where it gets really cakey. And so I know you eat a lot of cake. And so, Hey, props, do what you do. <laughs> 
Uh, what are we going to do today, man? Oh, this is an interesting one. I'm very happy. Today we are covering the Apple TV series Ted Lasso season one. There's only one season, at least at this the moment of this recording. So if you haven't seen that, pause this episode and go watch it. I believe Apple, at least just like right now, you can get Apple a year of Apple TV for free, at least at the time of this recording. So you can go sign up and even if it's just a week, at least it's a week most of the time. So you could just sign up, watch it and then and then cancel if you want. But that's where it is. So, yeah, that's really cool. Yeah, we'll talk about a, a few things. We'll touch on cinematography and the way they kind of blur the line between comedy and drama. And we'll also take a little dive on some of the writing and story. And there's a certain thing that Ted Lasso does in the first episode that makes us trust him as well as like him. And so we'll, we'll take a look at that. And I don't know, we'll throw a few speculations out on what we would expect it to happen in season two. Some We'll both take some stabs and maybe when season two comes out, we'll revisit and we'll we'll see how well we did. We'll tally up the chart because we don't we don't do a lot of TV shows, let alone, you know, comedy shows for an entire season. So this is kind of our first chance to predict and see what comes to pass. So, yeah, we'll talk about all that and other such stuff and things and stuff. And it might be a while before we do that because they release them per week. Right. Yeah, One episode a true. week. So. Yeah. And not only did did it just end season one, but then we got to wait through season two. So true. We'll see. We'll see. So a synopsis of uh, the series. A U.S. American football coach Ted Lasso heads to the U.K. to manage a struggling London football team in the top flight of English football. Created by Brendan Hunt, Bill Lawrence, and Jason Sudeikis. Starring Jason Sudeikis as Ted Lasso, Hannah Waddingham as Rebecca Welton, Brendan Hunt as Coach Beard, Jeremy Swift as Higgins, Phil Dunster as Jamie Tart, Brett Goldstein as Roy Kent, Nick Mohammed as Nathan, and Juno Temple as Keeley. Mate, what do I need to win? Two triple twenties and a bullseye. <laughs> Good luck. Mm. You know, Rupert, guys have underestimated me my entire life. And for years, I never understood why. I used to really bother me. But then one day I was driving my little boy to school and I saw this quote by Walt Whitman. It was painted on the wall there. It said, be curious, not judgmental. I like that. So I get back in my car and I'm driving to work and all of a sudden it hits me. All them fellas that used to belittle me, not a single one of them were curious. You know, they thought they had everything all figured out and so they judged everything and they judged everyone and i realized that they're underestimating me who i was had nothing to do with it because <laughs> if they were curious they would ask questions you know questions like have you played a lot of darts ted <laughs> which i would have answered yes sir Every Sunday afternoon at a sports bar with my father from age 10 to 16 when he passed away. Barbecue sauce. I dare you to not follow up with Ted Lasso. <laughs> oh, man. That was the best scene of the whole series. Yeah, wasn't it? It slays, man. It slays. So... What'd you think, fan? <laughs> yeah, I mean, like you have these shows that come out and 
it, it almost seems like every single show, not every single show, but like there's usually like one where you're like, damn, that's the best TV. That's the best TV. That's the best TV. That's the best season or that's the best series or whatever. And everybody has their own, and, you know, Breaking Bad or The Wire or True Detective, Seinfeld, whatever you want to say. But like you could say that something like this might not be on people's radar for like the best ever, but just like the feeling that you get from watching this show is unlike any other show I've ever seen. I mean, I, I have this feeling of there is hope for humanity. I have this feeling like things matter and things don't at the same time. And it's okay when they do. And it's okay when they don't like there's a deeper meaning with everything. It's, it's just fan fantastic. I, I didn't want it to end every single episode. I thought, Oh my gosh, I hate that I'm closer to the end. And, um, Jason Sudeikis slays in this film. I've never been like a crazy Sudeikis fan. Like he's, you know, done some really crappy movies, some decent ones. And I just never really like noticed him as an actor, but like, and that's not to take anything away from his acting. It's just mm -hmm. like, you know, choice of projects just aren't our taste. Right. I mean, anybody from how I met your mother, I don't think, mm -hmm. Oh, amazing acting, you know, mm -hmm. but they're, incredible actors in that in that show but this show man and it's not just him like everybody in this show is just top notch brought it did did all three did brendan hunt bill lawrence and jason sudeikis did they all write it too i know they created it yeah my impression is that this was based on a sketch as part of a nbc sports i haven't watched any of those sketches so i don't really know the kind of the backstory ian my roommate was telling me oh yeah they used to run the sketches you know whether three, four minute kind of SNL digital shorts almost in that, in that, yeah. that kind of vein. And yeah, so it was just this kind of silly, happy-go-lucky coach who was always doing silly, stupid stuff. And they spun yeah. it out of that and developed this. Well, I mean, whoever the hell wrote it just is the best TV writer in a long time. I mean, I'm going to wait until season two to say ever, but my God, I mean, the, there's so many layers, there's so many setups and deliveries there. And yeah, you got to have a great actor, but man, if they don't have the right words to say, it, it's got to be a perfect, this is just a perfect marriage. The, the casting they had for, the, for this is just fantastic too. It's fantastic. I loved it. That's so good. Same. I mean, this was one of those, I got Apple TV, I don't know, a month ago, maybe, or two months ago, just because I was getting bored of everything. And I was like, let me finally just check out. I knew they had The Banker and some uh, other movies that I'd been wanting to see. And so I was like, all right, I'll check it out. And I saw Ted Lasso on there. I was like, no way. This big mustache, this big bright poster. Yeah, you don't like mustaches, I can tell. <laughs> there can only be one, Todd. <laughs> <laughs> Well played. All right. <laughs> and so it just looked hokey, right? It looked like it was going to yeah. be the silly, over the top character, Ron Burgundy style thing. And I was like, eh, I'm kind of, I'm over that, you know, big comedy stuff, especially that kind of comedy. And because mustaches usually, you know, do not foretell uh, nuanced, deeply created character pieces. And so. I was just over it. And then I was on Facebook, which is rare. I'm on there maybe once a week, maybe once every other week. Like I'm hardly ever on there. But every once in a while, I'll jump on just because some people message me on there. And so I popped on just to check if there was any messages. And my acting coach, Trent Moore, had posted. It was first thing in my feed. And he was like, man, if you're looking for like something that speaks against the cynicism in the world today, 
you got to watch Ted Lasso. I'm begging you. So I was like, man, I trust that guy. That guy has great taste. And he and I, you know, when we start talking film and stuff, we, we really click. And so I was like, all right, you know what? I could really use an antidote to cynicism in the world today. So even if it is hokey, I will, I'll take a piece of that pie. And then, you know, you hit play. And of course, within minutes, the first, I don't know, two or three minutes, I was very confused. I was like, what am I watching again? Because they insert Ted Lasso's backstory very quickly. And you're just right there on the plane all of a sudden. And I don't know why he's been hired and why, you know, she wants him for the job, which of course they don't tell you. They, why they he took of, it. Yeah, why yeah. he took it. It's all very slow rolled, which is to the benefit. But, you know, initially to your your confusion. And so in some element, you feel like, Ted, you're the viewers a fish out of water. And, you know, you have to be patient a little bit with the show. But before long, it doesn't matter because you're in good hands with Ted. Like you pretty quickly see. I just kind of I kind of want to hang out with this guy. <laughs> like I don't care where we're going. It doesn't matter. And so, yeah, I completely went head over heels the jokes are just so witty and unassuming and and i'm not familiar with bill lawrence i if this is the same guy who is behind big bang theory then this is a really shocking show for him to develop because i i really hate big bang theory he did scrubs okay no so it doesn't look like that was his show good good on you buddy i love scrubs i love scrubs uh the reason why i hate big bang is just because it's a pretty cynical show. Like it's very, the characters are constantly, every joke comes at the expense of another character and it's very toxic and I hate it as opposed to this show where jokes very rarely come at the expense of another character. And even then it usually makes you frown at the person who delivered the joke instead of laugh at the punchline. And so I love that. I hate people being made fun of as an ends to comedy you know, to, to some degree, like there's, of course, you know, we can rib each other and cut on each other. That's all, you know, fun and games, but this show is largely built around inclusiveness and bringing people into the fold instead of trying to exclude them. And that is such a good message for today and something that, you know, we, we should have more of. There's these very silly and thoughtful jokes. The first time he meets, (laughs) Rebecca Welton, right? He says, uh, Miss Welton, nice to meet you. And she says, Oh, Miss Welton, <laughs> Miss Welton is my father's, Miss Welton is my father, <laughs> father's name. And he's like, Oh, if that's a joke, then I think it's absolutely hilarious. And if it's not, then I can't wait to unpack that with you. <laughs> it's so sincere and he's enjoying it, but leaving it open, it's, it's endearing, you know, in every way. And all the jokes have that kind of thread of, I'm a part of this with you, not condescending. I'm not looking down at you. And I think they use Jamie Tart's character as a really fine example of that as a great lightning rod to explore all those dynamics within the team and within the culture, the subculture of of the team and what, you know, Ted Lasso finds valuable and what he's trying to build. Jamie Tart is a really excellent character to develop because he's so easy to hate. Of course, he's easy to hate. He's he's a jerk and he's going against the grain of everything. The guy that we love is trying to build. And so I love him as a foil and I love the arc that they set him up on that they clearly haven't finished because even in that last episode, he's just so angry at, at Ted and he's just like, this guy's playing head games, right? The, the kid in the barbershop kind of sets him up for that. And he's just constantly saying, oh, this guy's just playing head games. He goes and talks to his ex and she's like, not everybody's out to get you, Keely, right? And mm-hmm. he says a bad word. And even Roy Kent then jumps in. He's like, hey, don't you dare, you know? And Roy's been benched. Like, and he's still fighting for his coach. Like, yeah, that's so cool. Yeah. So 
I don't know. I love this show. I think it's really exciting TV. It's a uh, really positive, up, uplifting thing to some degree. I'm, I'm sad that it lives on Apple TV, <laughs> but I, yeah. you know, just from the standpoint that not enough people are on Apple TV to watch it. But I'm glad he won an award for it. That'll raise the 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 visibility of the show and hopefully get more people to watch it and to participate in this style of thinking and this style of culture building because that's it's not something we really do as a culture and society anymore i just rambled a lot <laughs> no that's great that's great i agree with all of it and i love that you bring up keely one of the many brilliant things about this this show is her development as a character like when you first meet her and i guess it's the first episode Oh, she's just the girlfriend of Jamie Tart, who's this the star on the on the team. So she's like, and he's like slapping her butt. She's like wiggling her butt as she's leaving the room, mm. right? Oh, okay. So she's the stereotypical like you know, like a she's model got a new girlfriend. picture in the locker. Yeah, and so you're you know you're expecting her to be shallow or just you know with him because he's a footballer and all that stuff. But she's so much more than that, and she becomes a major like a major anchor for, for Hannah, for the, uh, the owner. Is that, is that Hannah? Who is it? Rebecca. Rebecca. Sorry. Yeah. For Rebecca, the owner, she's a major anchor for her and is just like this. She's like the female Ted Lasso for her, but curses a lot more. Uh, (laughs) And I love, I, I just, I love that. It's somebody, it's just another layer of somebody that you don't expect to see have another layer in a, in a show like this, right? It's about it's about foot, uh, you know, uh, European football, and mixed with an American coach, and being in locker rooms and being on a field, and it's really not about that, you know. I mean, it is, but it's about it, you replace soccer or or European football with any other sport. It doesn't matter, and or any other thing where a group of people have to ac- accomplish something, and that's it. And and it and it's fine. It's more about the story of his arc right? With his personal life mixed in with how he handles it on a day-to-day basis. I mean, I think that it's also, you know, I mean, after I finished watching it or when I was halfway through watching it, I remember coming and working out and saying, man, I wish I was more like Ted Lasso. I want to be more like him because there's so many days where you just, you don't want to get out of bed. You don't want to do anything or all the things that you have to do. You just like, oh, I have to do this. Well, you could look at it different. You could not, I choose to do it rather than I have to do it. And what does that mean? That changes everything and, and how you respond to the people around you. I mean, one of the things that makes him so amazing as a character is like, no matter what is happening around him, and we spoke about this, if he, if he is talking to you or if you t- speak to him and he looks at you, everything else disappears. Everything else in the room disappears. You have him if he's looking at you, even if you're interrupting him from doing something else, he's like, now you have me for 10 seconds. You have me. Okay. Now I'm back here. And it never like weighs on him. You know, it never, he doesn't let anybody see it weigh on him. Right. I mean, until he has that nervous breakdown and stuff, but even then, like he tries to keep it to himself, which is good and bad. But I mean, the point is, is that like, he just goes, he just continues. Right. And finds a way to continue positively and give what little positivity he has to the people that require it of him, right? All of his players require it of him. He cannot show up and be broken. After his wife basically says that I can't love you anymore, he, you know, he 
he has to go in and, or after he says goodbye to her and she leaves and they know that it's over, he has to go into work the next day and he's putting on his sweater. Even that's funny. Even that's like amusing. And he's giving, cause he's like putting on his sweater. He puts it on backwards. He notices it. And then he tries to turn it around inside out. Like who hasn't put on their sweater backwards. Right. <laughs> and he's just, he's frustrated, but you can tell he's just dealing with it and getting through it. And I, I think that everybody has their things that they go through and they're trying to find that little piece of like brightness to carry them through all the stuff that they ch are choosing to do in that day. And, and this is such a good blueprint for yeah. doing that, for how to do that. Yeah, no, I love that. And it makes me think of two things that make this show really unique. And the first one is I love the anti-message that kind of plays a, a, an arc over the, the entire film, which is it's okay to care about winning. Winning is the point, and it's okay to care about that. Because when we begin, right, he's he's a college coach coming to you know professional sports, and kind of the message whenever he meets that that reporter, Ted, whatever uh, I forget what his name is, but of the Independent, he tells him he's like, look, I I think you know there's more important things than winning and losing, and he repeats it later on. He's like, I just want to make sure because he says that. And the reporter's like, oh, you can bet that's going to make it into the article. And then later at dinner, he's like, I want to repeat what I, something I said earlier just so that, you know, it wasn't a mistake. I think there's more important things in winning and losing. It's not my top concern. My top concern is, I forget what he says, but it's along the lines of being a, a good good man and a good character for for the guys in that locker room. And, and that's fine. We love that message. But, you know, Coach Beard pulls his card at the end. He's like, hey. It's not okay. This is important and it's okay for it to be important. There are real world consequences for you, for me, and for the guys playing this game if we lose. This isn't just, you know, college kids anymore. This is people trying to make a living and there's a community behind us and there's a business and this is what we're here to do. We were hired to do a thing and it's okay to want to accomplish that thing and you need to change your priorities. And of course, that was about benching Roy Kent and mm -hmm. trying to do what's best for the team instead of trying to make a point as a coach. And I love that because it's true too. I mean, both things can be true. It can be true that you want to be a good example and you want to be a good coach and a good man and set a good example. And that can lead to more good things for your, you know, your job. And it's okay to also care about winning and to do what's right in order to win, you know, strategy wise. And I love the, the, the coalescing of those, those two ideas and those two thoughts. I think it's really smart and and deliberate writing like that's very intellectual it's a it's an intellectual approach to a complex issue because it can be easy to be reductive and say oh all you care about is winning or all you care about is money like there's yeah i mean it, maybe not all but those things matter and they matter for a reason and here's those reasons and here's the ways that they matter and also the ways that they don't and so the other thing that you know, what you're saying made me think of is this is the perfect antidote for another kind of long running theme in, in our show, which is toxic leadership. Like we've covered a, a couple of other films where, you know, the leadership was so toxic in order to accomplish a victory of some kind or another. Right. We looked at Whiplash and we looked at Steve Jobs and I'm sure there's probably been one or two others. But those are the, the strongest personalities, you know, bar none. And here you come with Ted Lasso, who is just the 180. Like he is first and foremost concerned with the well-being of his people and trying to get everybody on board with his message and locker. It's kind of an inside out approach. Like we're going to start 
in the locker room and what we do in the locker room is going to bleed out into the field instead of saying, I don't really care what happens in the locker room. The locker room needs to be a reflection of what's happening on the field. And so, you know, you lose a game and then it should be somber and quiet in the locker room. You can't have fun. And there's something to that. I'm not saying there's nothing to that, but this is a completely new approach and it's worth exploring. And I think ultimately it always comes down to personal leadership style and what's going to make results easiest or more fluent uh, for any given personality. I'm probably closer to a Ted Lasso, though I wouldn't say I'm like 100% Ted Lasso. I'm maybe like a, no, maybe nobody's 100% Ted Lasso. But I, I like that idea of we're all doing the best that we can and let's let's lift each other up instead of just bag on each other in order to try to strain out the best from each other. I think there's there's better medium, middle ground. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I think because I've always been the proponent of the Steve Jobs types. I think in most of these episodes that we've had, including Whiplash, I've always said, you know, sometimes you got to be that way. Right. And now I don't, I don't, I think I was wrong. <laughs> I really do. I really think I was wrong because, and I'll, let me be clear. And my wife, she was always disagreed with me. Right. It's like, no, you don't have to be an asshole or whatever. And I always dis disagreed with her. And I thought, no, sometimes you have to be to bring the best out of somebody. But I think it depends. I don't think it's necessary. And I think it depends on the type of person that the coach is or the, the, the leader is and the type of person that they're leading and what they respond to. Right. You have someone like Jamie Tart and someone like Roy Kent, they are not going to respond to someone who is like them. If you had, what's his name? The guy from whiplash, I forget his name. If you had him as the coach, no way in hell would they respond have responded. I mean, that locker room would have been broken up. Yeah. Way before the end of the season. I just think there are more, there are better ways. Now, after watching this, I'm, I'm sold that there are better ways to motivate people to do their very best by being kind and giving attention. Because most of the time people like Tart and Kent, what they, what they want is either attention or something that can't be yelled to them. Do you know what I'm saying? Like the yeah. louder somebody is, the less they hear, yeah. right? It's just like my children. The louder I am, the less they will pay attention to me. It's if I whisper where they get quiet to hear me. And it, I think it's the same way here. And, and I think in a lot of ways you can pull things out of people. Yes, you can, you can push people hard and yes, you can demand a lot of people. But I think at the end of the day, at least the way that I was when I played football or any sport, most of the time I had a coach that was, you know, that yelled and, and was like, not violent, but like, I could never do anything right. It felt like, so why, why keep trying if I'm never doing it right, hmm. you know, and I'm young and impressionable, or, you know, maybe I'm older, like, then why would I, you know what, but if I love you and you're telling me that I have better in me and I just need to do this and that and that to get it out, but the, you, you like have faith in me, then, oh my God, I will go to the moon for you. And I think in, in the case of like whiplash in the case of anybody who started at Apple, if, if Steve jobs was the opposite, maybe the same thing would have happened. Who knows? Right. He's just the way that he is, is a slave driver or was, was a slave driver. Right. Yeah. That's just who they are, right? They're dicks. So, okay, then then only people who respond to dicks 
will do well. And I, I just wasn't one of them. And I think, I think that a lot of times people who even respond to people who are jerks would also respond to people who are not more often than not. Some won't, uh, of course, not everybody's the same, but man, this has totally changed my mind just from a little series, a little 10 episode series or whatever it is. It's just completely changed my outlook. It was amazing. That's awesome. Yeah. I feel like I probably had a similar experience. I've always, yeah. I'm the kind of person who doesn't need a lot of correction. If I get corrected once, it's highly unlikely I'm going to make the same mistake twice. I'm certainly capable, mm -hmm. but you know, if someone says, Hey, this, I don't like it when you do this done, that's over. That has become a, a force for me to never repeat that mistake. Small or big, it doesn't really matter. I'm, I'm going to be pretty hard on myself. And so I've certainly had some coaches who were really, really hard, but most of them saw that I was giving, you know, a thousand percent. I think the worst coaches for me were the ones who would not empower the players mm -hmm. because they were. And I remember my high school football coach was just the worst. He didn't know what he was doing. He didn't understand the the heartbeat of his team. And so he would be a nice guy, but at the same time, not empower you, which was this underhanded dickish quality. Like it's almost you know, the, the whole, I think nice guys of uh, the, the, or the phrase nice guys become, you know, very toxic, uh, an implication of toxicity when it's like, oh yeah, it, it just kind of means you're putting on one face while actually being underhanded in another way. And that was very much the way he would, you know, if you, there was, you know, a time when I might want to, you know, speak to the team and he's like, no, 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 no. You know, it's like, we're the players, like, you know, let us talk to each other. Let us, you know, pick each other up or correct each other. And mm -hmm. he just was not willing to, to let his team take over in that way. And so, yeah, we sucked. Like we were really terrible. We were two and eight, you know, my senior <laughs> year. Gosh. And one of those games resulted in like one of the, I think the we broke the Texas state high school running rushing record in a single game and like the scoring record in a single game, like we went nuts and it was an incredible like experience for sure. But we had greatness. I think we had greatness in us with better coaching and it, it's a shame. Like you don't know what talent you have. You don't know what you can accomplish because some coaches are too busy trying to cover their own ass yeah. and too busy just trying to have their way instead of trying to, like you said, like different people require different things. That's called chemistry. Like the chemistry with one person requires a certain new mixture that the last person doesn't. And I feel like Ted Lasso had a good thumb on that. The way he treated Nate was different from the way he treated Jamie and the way he went about, you know, winning over Roy and it's highly psychological, but at no point was it ever, you know, toxic or mean. It was always in the best of intentions. And, and for the most part, very clear, like Roy knew exactly what he was doing. <laughs> he yeah. wasn't like yeah. undermining him. He was like, yeah, nope. okay. Hey, it's on you. <laughs> and, you know, <laughs> yeah. He gave him that, that smile, that even killed yeah. smile. And it was just beautiful to watch him uh, go to work. Yeah, no, I agree with you, man. Like, uh, this is a, a winning message that deserves, yeah, sure. you know, the attention. I'll run through a few notes here. We'll we'll see what you know. You'll do what you do and pop in as you like. But the cinematography got, was was pretty cool. On the one hand, like you have a a comedic style that is largely in wides and mediums or like medium wide, so that you can have two shots, two people in a frame allows for more physicality and, and more reactions to, you know, what the other person is doing. And so you can kind of let a moment play out. So they have a lot of that for, for the comedy, but they also insert a lot of like 
longer lenses, close-ups, blurry backgrounds, which lets us into a, an actor or a character's personal space for these dramatic moments and realizations. And that's far more dramatic. And so they're, they're constantly riding the line between comedy and drama, which is really interesting because this is a 30 minute format and 30 minutes usually are much more comedy. And so I really love that they played it pretty down the middle. They never miss an opportunity for comedy for sure, but they did not shy away from allowing these uh, heartfelt dramatic moments to really live and have have their space and to breathe. And to that end, there's a lot of setups. Normally, comedies might do like two or three setups. Like we're going to do this two shot wide, maybe these clean singles so that we can edit around the comedy. Oh, this take was better. And now we can cut it in with this reaction shot or whatever. But you don't go too far because you're trying to shoot fast. The point is the jokes and Shooting comedy, you can kind of run out of gas, comedically speaking, on set, you know, relatively fast. It's not you don't want to be on, you know, for for all 10 hours of set life. You got to save some of that energy and it's very exhausting doing comedy. And so whenever you start moving into a lot of setups, you're you're doing something else now. And so in this case, like it's very film-esque, cinematic, right? Lots of coverage to get specific shots. So, for instance, in like episode two, when Ted uh, goes to Rebecca, right? He goes, biscuits with the boss, you know? And he's trying to get help getting what he calls, have a little trouble getting Jamie's operating instructions and wonder if you had any advice, you know? <laughs> and he's asking her for for her for help. And what, one of the things he asks, he's like, I don't know, do you, do you know what it's like to have something special that reminds you of home? And there's this beautiful little sequence that they cut together where it cuts to a POV shot of the biscuits that he brought her. And then a reverse POV from the biscuits perspective of her looking at the biscuits. And then whenever they exit the scene, they do it again, but with the, with the army man that he gives her on the desk, she kind of looks at it and it looks at her and, you know, Ted walks away. Like that's a lot of setups that you wouldn't often get out of a comedy. Uh, but here you have to take a lot of time to do that kind of thing. And then two, the lighting is very dramatic. They do a lot of upstage lighting, not every single scene, but a lot of scenes, especially the ones where he's trying to get to something, use this upstage lighting, which which just means that the, the, the main source light is coming from the other side of our subjects. And so that creates a lot more depth, a lot more shadow towards the camera side, right? If the light is on the opposite, it's hitting its subject, the section near us is just going to be cast in shadow. And I think of the the scene where, and it might've been that same, that same uh, episode too, where Ted goes, you know, pulls Jamie into his office and he's like, Hey man, you're great. You're so good. But you know what? One thing you're not great at is sometimes you forget that you're so good that you're also, you forget that you're also, you know, one of 11 or whatever the nicely laid out phrases. And that whole scene, that whole setup is very dramatically lit with this, you know, reverse source lighting, um, reverse key lighting. And so I, I love that. But the problem too is you have to understand more dramatic, longer setup time. It takes a lot more time to shape those, shape all that light, especially between camera setups. And so it's one thing to say, oh, we're going to do a dramatic setup and we're going to do it for this one shot and now we're out. 
But it's another thing to do like, oh, now we got to get coverage and we got to go tighter and we got to go hit this angle. We got to do this angle. That takes a lot of time to keep that consistent lighting setup, and especially when it's that strong of a look. So they're investing time. So maybe instead of a week shooting an episode, maybe it takes them a week and a half or two weeks for because of that reason, because they know this scene isn't going to take us an hour. It's going to take us four because of all this extra work that we're doing. And it's just not super common in uh, comedies in the 30 minute format, but this adds a look of higher production value and quality, which is really important for Apple TV because they're trying to establish a brand quality as they're still young and launching their service. And so you want to make sure people see this element of high production value like an HBO. So I might liken this to something like HBO's Entourage or Veep as opposed to something like Fox's New Girl or some of these other similar styles like New Girl is great, but I would say the, the, the variety of location isn't the same. There's a lot more location variety in this, but it's for a point like they're not just doing it because it's fun. They're doing it because we want to increase our brand value and our brand perception. Anyway, moving on to some of the writing and story, there's something that happens in the first episode watching it the second time that just kind of blew me away because of how smart it is. The we're first meeting Ted Lasso. The first impression we get of him is through that ESPN clip. And they're showing him dancing, doing the running man or Roger Rabbit. I don't know what the hell that dance is. Uh, it's a bad cabbage patch or something, right? He's, he's dancing silly in, in the locker room. And you're like, oh, this guy's a jackass. And then you meet him on the plane and he's just kind of silly. And you're like, oh, this guy's going to get his ass handed to him. And he starts to win you over a little bit. Like he makes this joke about coach. If we see, if we land up in the same dream, just pretend like you don't know each other for a little while, you know, play, play it off. <laughs> you know? And it's just like, Oh, okay. That's kind of funny. And so he's, you're like, okay. So at least he's, he's, he's humorous. Like he he's quirky, but then something happens the, the next time we see him, which is really only the second time we're meeting him whenever he walks in to, uh, well, I guess this is like the third time because he lands and he meets the, the chauffeur, but he meets the boss for the first time. And this is great because he refuses the tea like he drinks the tea and he hates the tea and he's like completely rejects it. And he just craps it. all over it. <laughs> it's like, I don't know why you do that. So this is, yeah, this is trash water. <laughs> And I was absolutely right about that. <laughs> and it's so good because what I love is he's meeting a new, think about this. If you are meeting a new boss for the first time in a job you're not qualified for in a new country with a renowned passion for tea, the last thing you're going to do is insult the tea. Right. That's just not social etiquette, right? Social rules would suggest that he should accept and compliment the tea, not make waves. But he immediately hates it and does so directly and politely. But he makes absolutely no qualms about it. He just doesn't sip it and put it down and, and like let it go. He's like, nope, I'm going to voice exactly how I feel about this thing right now. And I love that because it's a huge key to letting us know that he's not a happy-go-lucky rube. He's authentic. He has a perspective. And it's his alone. And he's not afraid of sharing it. This sets us at ease that we can now root for Ted instead of pity him or laugh at him. He's not a joke. He's just a really good person. And him putting a stake in the ground in this critical moment, I thought was just brilliant writing and brilliant story story development and character uh, development. Like it's just very, very intelligent. And similar, you know, similar thing with letting Nate defend himself, right? He's not coddling anyone. 
He genuinely wants the best for everyone. And he also understands that self-possession is key to growth. And if Nate isn't going to defend himself or his teammates aren't going to step in for him, then, you know, he has a bigger problem. And so he's he's playing, you know, on a whole other level. He's trying to think bigger than that. I totally agree with that. That's very insightful. And it makes me think of when he's at dinner with the reporter. Trent. Trent. Yes. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. He refused. He tell he says, oh, I hate the tea. The tea is awful. Right. But then he goes to dinner and he gets he gets fed a meal. Right. And he won't stop eating it. In fact, when when Trent can't eat it because it's too hot, he's like, oh, give it to me. He'll eat it because he doesn't want to make him feel bad. Now, the difference there, it made me think like, okay, well, what's the difference? Difference is he was given tea. He didn't ask for tea. He didn't want tea. Mm. Right. But when he goes to dinner, he says, bring me your finest. And so this is something that, that the, the owner there who is excited that he's there in his, in, in their restaurant is bringing him, this is his best. What? God dang it. I'm going to eat it all. You know what I mean? And I'm going to like it. And I'm going to tell him that I liked it and it was delicious. And then I'm going to go, go home and shoot fire out my butt for an hour. You know what I mean? Like the difference is holy. He is giving himself to that. Right. A hundred percent. And I think even the phrases, one of the phrases that he uses there is treat me like I'm one of the family. Ah, yes. Yes. And the last thing Ted Lasso is going to do is reject uh, a feeling of being included in someone's family. Right. If he would have uh, just been given it. Right. right? Yeah. That might have been different. But he asked for it. Right. He said, I want to be treated like your family. This is what you do for your family. Well, then, you know what? I'm going to eat this. Gosh darn it! Good, that's a really good observation. Yeah, another thing that you know throughout the writing is they do a great job of having these small subplots and character building things that are very brief and they are just hints along the way, and they they add up to a bigger story. One of the characters that I really liked was Higgins. He's a very small character. He's just kind of peppered in, but he but you know him. You feel like you know Higgins and you know what he's about and you know what makes him tick. And at the beginning, right, he's having lunch with Ted. He's he's part of the team. That's what Ted says. Everyone in this building is part of the team. In fact, Higgins and I are having lunch later today. We're, we're trading salads or something along the lines. And he, and he leaves. Uh, he's like, oh, I'll see you later. And he, he says, see you later. And he just bursts right back through the door. That might be the single funniest moment because he's like, yes, <laughs> yes. <laughs> and everyone's like violently shocked. Yes. His reaction is so amazing. Uh, and I love Higgins. And I forgot about that moment. <laughs> in a later episode, like Higgins takes a phone call from Rebecca and he's at breakfast with his family. Now he's late for work. He's supposed to be at work, but he stayed to, uh, you know, to, to have breakfast with his family. And then he rushes to work. But it's a small hint that he not only has a family, but likes his life so much he'll be work late to work for it, which is a really interesting perspective for someone who's already very on the line at work. But also it comes into play later whenever Ted is talking to him about his own predicament with his own d- impending divorce. And he's trying to get his insight. He's like, hey, you have a family. We've already seen that he has a family. We got a sense that he likes his family. And so hearing him discuss his perspective on his life means so much more with those little tiny, you know, five second insights. And they literally might up to might add up to five and 10 seconds, right? Where he's in a car at one point, he's at breakfast. And that's about the extent of us seeing him with his family. 
but we we feel it we understand it kind of implicitly just from the atmosphere that he's involved in and they also hide the bitter history between Rebecca and Higgins. They kind of save that for towards the end. And they just kind of let us discover the relationship along the way. She kind of treats him bad. He kind of takes it and smiles. And then, at, you know, I think episode eight, they reveal that him and Rebecca were really friends from her perspective. They were really good friends and that she feels betrayed by him. And that's why she treats him so poorly. They waited almost the entire season to let you in on that little bit. And then because along the way, you kind of like Rebecca, but you also kind of hate her because she of what she's doing to Ted and the way she's treating Higgins. And, you know, we've begun to like Higgins. He's part of the Diamond Dogs. Like, we, we really enjoy him. And, like, we hate seeing her do this to him because we both like them equally in, in different scenarios. And, and so finally getting this revelation is kind of a salve. And, like, oh, that's why. They were friends. And so I love the, just these little tiny looping subplots that kind of get resolved in ways that they don't really open cleanly. They just kind of throw you in the mix. And similar, I think it's somewhere, you know, maybe nine or ten, where we find out that Higgins actually turned down an offer from Rupert. Like, it's just this very small throwaway comment from Rupert where he says, Oh, good. Maybe he'll finally accept my offer. And you're like, oh, crap. Higgins has chosen to be here and chosen to not be with Rupert. And even in that same sequence, you understand that Higgins like chews on pin tops like a nervous little chihuahua or whatever he says. And part of that probably is all the anxiety that both of these people give him. But of the two, Rebecca's the better. And that's all hidden right there in plain sight through one offhand comment like it's it's really s slow patient storytelling uh, and they do that continually like they slowly introduce more characters they wait until almost halfway through the season to introduce rupert and they do the same thing with ted's family right we don't meet his wife and kid until uh, episode five and so they really take their time and let these things play out when they're appropriate and when they you know can add something to the story instead of just kind of be a setup like why start setting something up quite that early when you can just let it all develop a little bit more nuanced and we kind of see things from rebecca's point of view and so we know about rupert but we're kind of just watching the way she thinks about him the way she hates him before we ever meet him and so by the time we meet him we're almost ready to like is he really that bad and of course he is he's such a prick and, it, and then now it's like we get an opportunity to root for rebecca in a way but also want more for her which of course pays off i don't know episode nine or ten it's you know towards the end but it's beautiful also really like that they have these great setbacks at horrible times so first the entire setup is already one giant setback because you have a fish out of water story right he's so there's there's built-in trouble with Ted getting acclimated to the culture, right? The UK. But then he's also learning a new sport. So for a while, you don't really need to give him anything extra. Like you don't need to suddenly throw him into a car wreck or, you know, the episode two, you can't take away Jamie Tart. And so they give him a lot to work against. And that's just built in. He's got to win the team over. He's got to win the owner over. He's got to learn football. He's got to win the fans over. Like he's already just <laughs> got so much. And so they wait for a long time before finally giving him a real a new setback, something big, because he finally gets the team to feel like a team, right? The bonfire, sacrifice. Now he got two aces, you know? And then he loses Jamie Tart. And now he has a big setback. And now it's like, oh, back to square one almost. And it's 
it's beautiful. I love waiting or in, in throwing a really good setback at a horrible time right when he's making progress. Let's kneecap him and now see how he reacts to that. Because the, the great thing about having a character like Ted, this eternal optimist, is you got to throw a lot at this guy to really set him back, to really upset him and throw him off his game. And so having those moments is very satisfying as an audience member. Okay, well, it's it's easy to be nice and it's easy to be happy and it's easy to have a good day when everything's going your way. But what about when things aren't going your way? Now we're going to test his optimism. And that's beautiful. And so one of the things, you know, how do you crack the world's biggest optimist? Well, another way you can do that, put them through a divorce. Mm-hmm. Like I can't imagine, you know, someone like Ted who's full of love and having, you know, effectively his love rejected in a sense, right? It's not, and I love the way they handle that. I think it's beautiful because it's not that she thinks he's a bad person. She's not really rejecting his love. She just feels differently now. And they do a beautiful job of, of, you know, revealing that whole thing. And they take a couple episodes to make him work through it. And it's not just over in one episode. Now he has to sign the papers and that becomes a whole new animal because it's one thing to like, mentally acknowledge that yeah okay it's over but now you have to commit to it legally and in a binding and final way and that becomes a whole new thing and of course that is where he snaps right he has a breakdown he snaps at nate and i love that sequence when nate is trying to slip the the paper under the door with his thoughts and ted rips the door open and chews him out one of the things that i love about that sequence is his hair is wet and it's a mess And I love that because this isn't Ted as we know him. They physically changed him to kind of remove us a little bit from the Ted that we know. If you had had him perfectly put together and chewing him out, now we kind of feel, you know, wronged. We feel violated because our Mm -hmm. Ted is now doing something mean-spirited. Good point. And now we get to kind of disassociate and understand that, no, he's emotionally wrecked. We see him you know, here and there kind of correct his hair and fix his hair. And so seeing it out of whack and allowing it to happen, we emotionally understand the significance of that and that this isn't Ted. And of course he apologizes and nothing is better than a good apology on film. Nothing like it's just so endearing to see people totally. like own their shit. Like we don't get that in society. Like no and one, we get it really, multiple times in this show. Yeah. It's, it's authentic. It's heartfelt. And you believe it as opposed to most apologies today are like pre-written and scripted and you just don't believe any of that shit. And I love that. And my last little note here, and this is super throwaway, and this is the director part of me taking observations of, oh, that's good. There's this really tightly coordinated moment that I just really love because sometimes I get in my head about, is this too on the nose? Like, is this too choreographed? There's that scene where they're in the bar yelling wanker. I think it's like the second or third episode. And everyone's yelling in unison, right? Wanker, wanker. And then May, the bartender, she's like, hey, give him a chance. And then they start booing her and immediately roll back right back into yelling wanker, wanker. And it's very tight. And but in one like kind of shot, you see that transition go from, hey, you know, shut up, whatever, May wanker wanker and i bet that's the kind of thing you got to work through you know four or five takes really to get the timing tight because it plays so much better in one shot as opposed to cutting around to make it work make it work in post and that's one of those things where as a director i might be tempted to let it play a little bit longer and let it be a little more messier so that it's more believable but this is a comedy it doesn't have to be believable it needs to be funny needs to be uh interesting and quick 
quick to the punch. Don't bore us. Get to the chorus. Right, Todd? Like, let's just get to the the the, the punchline. And that was for me something that I, I'm going to try to remember as anytime I do comedy, like it's OK to get a little bit quicker to the punchline sometimes, especially in these moments that are probably hard to coordinate with an entire bar full of people you know, drinking grape juice or whatever they they're throwing in their pints. Yeah. But I like that. I like the pop, pop, pop of it. It's, it's perfect. So what did you not like about it? Ooh, that's a tough one. I mean, there's a few moments that I'm like, ah, that doesn't really play. I like the idea, but y'all didn't nail it. There's this one scene where Roy is trying to learn who he is if he's not a football player. And I understand that that's a mm-hmm. tough thing for an athlete who, who spent his entire childhood and, you know, high school, college, professional sports. And now you have to grapple with, I'm moving into a new phase of life. That is not that, that I'm no longer the best. No one's like looking at me to be a physical specimen. Uh, who am I? And so that's a really, really strong moment. And I love the idea that Keeley calls his niece into the room is like, Tell me about your Uncle Roy. Name, you know, what do you think about? And it's it's a little too easy. It's a little too obvious. And I like the, the idea so much, but I think the execution was a little lazy or at least a little on the nose. Um, that could have probably used mm-hmm. uh, a little more, I don't know, flavor or something. I don't know if it's the actor. I think the girl's adorable. Maybe they needed to give her a few more takes or different dialogue. I would bet that I would have my problems really with the dialogue, not with her because she's flipping adorable and utterly perfect. So there's some some small moments like that. I think that kind of rubbed me a little bit, but not enough to, you know, lose me in the story. Like I think about it, but because I'm already so emotionally invested, I go with it. I just kind of steamroll right over it. I'm like, oh yeah, I see what you're doing, but I know why you're doing it. And therefore I'm in. <laughs> yeah. What about I, you? I Is there that. Some moments that you, or anything that you didn't like about it? Yeah, there was just one moment after Keely and Roy kiss in the hotel and then he leaves her in the, the hallway. Mm. And then Keely goes and sleeps with Jamie again. I hated that. Yeah. I freaking hated it. I was like, why? And then not only does she do it, but then, you know, she tells Roy and Roy is supposed to be just okay with it. Like, look, I get the whole oh, you know, you have to be okay with your partner's past and they have to be okay with yours, I guess, if you want to be with them. I I get that and I agree, you know? But like, if it was the other way around, who would be telling the woman, just get over it? You've been with other guys too. Like nobody, that would not be in the show. Mm. I mean, maybe somebody in real life would, but not not in a show, Mm. right? And I don't care about double standards. Like that's not the reason why it bothered me because I think that women have it way worse when it comes to like physicality (laughs) and like, sexuality and stuff. So I don't care about the double standard. What I care about is the characters and the expectation Mm. of the character, right? So Roy's just supposed to get over it, even though it happened like last night. Oh, you just got to get over it. Well, no, if you really, if she really liked him, then she wouldn't want to be with anybody else, right? She like, yeah, Jamie's there and I want it and I want him, but I, I don't know. It just didn't, Maybe in real life it could have happened, but I, I just didn't like that they that they did go there. Maybe they could have made it where he thinks that they went there and she lets him think it. You know what mm, I'm saying? And she lets yeah. him stew in it. And then he finds out that they didn't. And because like he's already got to deal with the fact that he knows that that Keely has been with Jamie. 
Keely was right. dating Jamie. He's yeah. already got to deal with that. Now he's got to deal with that. She was with him last night. Like I get that Roy didn't, he didn't go all the way and he didn't, but that's not. But here's the thing. And I want to add to your point because I think you're right. The more I think about it, the more I'm, I'm agreeing with you, which is she also didn't do the grown up thing, which was to seek clarification. Like she didn't go to him and say, Hey, what are you really feeling right now? All she knows is that he didn't want to go get coffee with her because he was busy. Right. She didn't really, you know, investigate and do the mature thing either, which is to, you know, ask him and put your cards on the table and say, hey, here's what I'm thinking. Do you not feel the same way? If not, then, you know, here's where I'm at. And so I would probably be upset with that, too. Like, man, we just went out and now you're like hooking up with your ex like the night, the next night. And you were just mm -hmm. asking me to, to hang out. So I would be confused and probably put off a little bit. Maybe I wouldn't be like super judgmental about it, but I would probably be hurt. I mean, we're still people were emotional. I think we're allowed to have emotions and to say that that scenario wouldn't cause emotional conflict is uh, an immature perspective, I think. And for a lot of reasons, for a lot of reasons, but I agree that they didn't necessarily had have to put that point forward especially without kind of acknowledging her own contribution to the uh to the problem and to what developed and it just gives more to jamie right why do we want to give more to jamie like he's an asshole yeah. all the time and then he comes and he apologizes to her and then she invites him in it's like it belittles her as a character and it empowers him as a character and we're like he already had the power when he apologized, he transformed. Yeah. Right. In that moment, at least he transformed. Yeah. But then it was like, oh, we're just going to fall back into the old. I think maybe some of the uh, encouragement was laid out a little earlier because the last time they had hung out together, she made this comment about the Pavlovian response to mm. being together in certain situations. And so maybe by the same token, you could make a silly argument, albeit that she was trying to train him to do the right thing through a Pavlovian response of now mm. you get sex. <laughs> nah, yeah. But I think, I think just as important is that she also does own her bullshit after her and Roy kind of rectify things. Whenever he's like, you just did that to like, get back at me. You know, she's like, no, I didn't. No, I didn't. Yep. 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 That's exactly what I did. You're right. That's what I did. And I respect that too. I respect that she came clean and she owned, you know, some of her shit. And so, yeah, it's a tricky, it's complicated. Yeah, it's it's pretty complex. I mean, sex for, as a weapon for me is a trigger, Soup, personally. Ditto. So when ditto. I see that shit, I'm like, I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm out, I'm done. I don't <laughs> want, no. Yeah. But yeah, that, that would be the only thing. I mean, the character still, I just, I just love the writing is brilliant and it's shot beautifully yeah. and fantastic. Nice. So before the show, I don't know if you did, but I asked if you wanted to make any predictions for season two. Like, what do you think is going to happen? Any storylines moments whatever what do you think might happen in season two i was thinking about that i don't have a ton but i i think it it would be nice and i really think that they're gonna they're gonna get unrelegated i guess is that how you say it they're gonna move back up promoted yep. um, promoted thank you because uh, one of the last lines he says is it, he curses he actually says a curse word he says we're gonna win the whole f thing or something like yeah, that Yeah, that's right and which is like, okay, when Ted Lasso is determined, now I would like to see that kind of Ted Lasso because he was determined, but in a very subdued way that we didn't know about. You know, we didn't, 
know how determined he was at whatever the hell he was trying to do because it wasn't trying to win. Right. Yeah. He was trying to maybe yeah. bring people together, but I would like to see like that. Right. And for yeah. them to actually to, to win. Yeah. That was the only thing really that I could put my finger on. I have, I don't really have anything else, but I think they're going to win. They're going to get promoted. Nice. Okay. So some of my guesses are, and this is a no brainer. Roy Kent becomes a coach. Mm-hmm. I think you have to have Jamie Tart come back. He has to return to the team and be coached by Roy Kent. Yes. <laughs> oh, good How good call. is that? That's totally going to happen. I think kind of a mid-season drama twist will be Coach Beard gets an offer to go coach somewhere else. Now, that could be for another soccer team, which would be my guess, to keep him in the loop. Or it could be he goes back home. I don't know. But my bet is Coach Beard gets a, a, a coaching offer. And, of course, like you said, they get promoted. I think that's kind of a season finale thing that sets yeah. up Maybe they play three. Coach Beard's team Ooh, at the very to get end. end. Ooh, and then he gets in. fired. And then he returns back to the, whatever they are. <laughs> season Richmond. three. He's back on yeah, the team. He's back on the team. Yeah. But that's great like because we love that conflict and resolution. It's going to hurt. It's going to hurt so bad to lose Coach yeah. Beard because they're such a... a pea and uh, carrot you know together and but then it's gonna feel so good when he comes back <laughs> so we want Definitely. we want all those feels we want we want the, the tension and the resolution that's it's good stuff yeah so. definitely i like nice. it that's nice. a good suggestion there yeah <laughs> very cool i don't know final thoughts man if you listen to this whole thing and we've ruined the entire thing for you just go watch it yeah. It's not going to ruin it, to be honest. I mean, I've it's only watched endearing. it one time through. I think you've watched it twice, maybe three times through. I'm going to go watch it again. Three? Nice. Yep. Just fantastic. All around the board. I mean, and Sudeikis earned that Golden Globe for sure. He really did. He yep. really did. Fantastic. Nice. So what are you going to recommend this week? Oh, yes, yes, yes. Okay. So recently, I just, I never, I didn't want to watch this, but I saw it pop up. And so I was like, okay, I guess I'm going to watch it. And it was un unbelievable i just absolutely loved it sound of metal which i told you that i watched the other the other day but it, it, fantastic it's about a, a drummer who loses his hearing and how you just go watch it and how he deals with that and everything but uh, how do you say it riz ahmed yeah or Ruben stone yeah. it just gosh i can't even it's so amazing and it you know it's about a musician so you, you know normally i'm like oh careful you know and but he he actually plays drums in it, right? Rudimentarily, but so does Meg White in the White Stripes. So I don't really give a shit. <laughs> but he's actually playing and he's hitting the he's hitting the skins and everything. And I would recommend watching it with headphones because it is uncomfortable to say the least, especially if you're a musician. I mean, there were a couple of times I had to take my headphones off and just like be in the silence of a room, which is not silence at all because I have noise canceling headphones, right? So don't watch it on TV. Uh, watch it with headphones. Yeah. Wow. Sound of metal. Yeah. Intense. Great recommendation. I will second that. I'm going to recommend, I changed my mind. I was, I was going to recommend Freaks and Geeks. If no one's ever watched, if you've never seen that, it's definitely worth watching. I just rewatched it and it's so good. And you'll see like Shia LaBeouf as a tiny kid and Seth Rogen and so many 
good ones. But I changed my mind after you said Sound of Metal. I realized there is something else I want to recommend, which is Nomadland. Incredible performance from Frances McDormand. She deserves an Oscar nomination. I still would rather Vanessa Kirby get it for Pieces of a Woman. I think she is incredible. So I'm interested to see how this plays out. Viola Davis should also get a nomination for Ma Rainey and Ma Rainey's Black Street. And Chadwick Boseman won one posthumously, right, for a Golden Globe Mm -hmm. for Best Actor absolutely earned i don't i know people are going to look at that and if you haven't seen his performance you're going to think oh you know it was just a posthumous you know we love him and this was you know a good spirited award no 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 if he was still alive he would still have earned that and so i'm excited to see you know him also take uh, be awarded that and hear his wife speak again because she was amazing and in that same vein if you haven't seen no bad lane it just came out on hulu Alex, uh, who, you know, is one of our listeners, she had recommended it to me. And so as soon as it hit Hulu, I watched it like that day. And it's fantastic. It's it's nuanced and it's subtle and it's full of it's very thoughtful. And we don't have enough thoughtful movies like this because it's easy to watch the first 20, 30 minutes and think, you know, what this movie is trying to say. And then you'll be corrected again and again and again if you're really watching it with your heart and your mind and it's just it's beautiful her performance is absolutely incredible and i'm excited to see more from uh, chloe zhao who's a, a asian american filmmaker director so i'll be watching her back catalog and uh, i'm excited to see more from her so yeah nomadland go check that out Don't forget, uh, so stay tuned. Next week, we are going to be covering Hunt for the Wilder People. This is uh, Taika Waititi's. I don't have his name in front of me, so I might be butchering. But he's a really, really, really talented writer-director. If you watched Jojo Rabbit, uh, same guy. I think this is what put him on the map. This was requested by one of our frequent listeners slash our editor, (laughs) uh, Cassie, my intern. (laughs) So, oh, awesome! Yeah. Okay. Cool. Yeah. So, thanks, Cass. Stay tuned. We'll we'll be talking about that next. And don't forget to subscribe. Leave us a review on iTunes. Leave us know if there's something you want us to cover type of film that we haven't covered before i mean we haven't done like stand-up comedy that would be interesting to to dissect and discuss interesting yeah there's all kinds of films that we haven't done and if you want us to do it drop us a review or drop us a note and if you want to comment on this episode in particular you can do that at the pestlepodcast.com slash ted lasso all one word and our quote of the day is from tony dungy you should never be defined by what you do by the things you have. You've got to define yourself by who you are and who you impact and how you impact people. And that's the thing I try to get across to my players. Great quote, man. Uh, He was always a a coach that seemed like the Ted Lasso type, right? Yeah, that's right. I mean, obviously, you know, he got mad, but everything every football coach does. But man, he always seemed like he kind of had it together. You know, it's beautiful. Absolutely. No. And he, yeah, exactly. I think he embodies the spirit of Ted Lasso because I think he got clowned a little bit for his approach because he wasn't so monstrous. He wasn't a Bill Belichick where he's going to dress you down in front of the whole team or make you feel like crap. He was always trying to uplift his players and, and he wasn't going to be defined by his wins and his losses. And it took a while. He got his ring and I, I think a coach came behind him and, and took some rings and I think he got his with Tampa Bay. I kind of forget my football history a little bit, but I feel like he got his at, at Tampa. Regardless, like his approach is worthy of emulation and I'm glad whenever I had to start thinking about 
do we have any Ted Lassos? Because I love Greg Popovich, but he is no Ted Lasso. He is very much the guy who, I mean, in some ways, I guess he is because he's very, he treats different players differently. He doesn't, you know, necessarily treat I haven't been watching basketball lately. So last time I was watching, you know, the whole crew was still there. Kawhi and Tim Duncan and the way he treated Tony wasn't necessarily the way he treated Manu and, uh, you know, so on and so forth. Like he, he read the player, but he still was not afraid to like scold people. Whereas that's just not Ted's way, even though sometimes we're talking about practice, you know, that's, <laughs> it wasn't really the Ted way. And so I love finding that in Tony Dungy because I think he really embodies the spirit. And I wouldn't be surprised if they look to him for inspiration and in, in how to create Ted Lasso and how to make him a winning coach in, in the same way, because Tony won a lot of games. You can say whatever you want about him. He won a lot of football. And so hats off to Tony Dungy. Agreed, man. Beautiful. Love it. Well, thank you guys so much for joining us. I had a great time. I'm so glad we we decided to do this. We've been talking about it internally or externally, however you <laughs> say it for a while. Thank you for recommending this to me because you told me about it and I was like, yeah, okay, maybe whatever. Oh, Apple TV. I don't have it, but I decided, well, he's been talking about it, saying how good it is. I got to watch it. So thank you very much. Changed my life obviously. And, and I, I appreciate it. Ditto. Yeah. Hopefully you guys enjoyed this episode. Really appreciate it. Like Wes said, please make sure to subscribe, review us on iTunes or anywhere, make a suggestion. What do you want us to cover and share us with your friends? It all helps until next time. I'm Todd. I am Wes. Go watch some movies.